Well, hey guys, good morning. My, thank you, yeah. My name is Pastor Jeff Martell. I'm one of the pastors at the Norton campus and uh, really, really excited to be with you this morning. I actually had a ministry first uh, last night. They applied makeup to my head. Said it was too greasy and the cameras didn't like that. Uh, I want to apologize to you ahead of time because no one found me this morning and put any makeup on my head. So if you have glare problems, I apologize. I'm also producing an inordinate amount of spit this morning when I talk. It's just been flying all over the place. So raincoats are in the back if you guys need them. Today was the wrong day to sit in the front row. Yeah. Anyway, you guys got a lot of stuff going on here at the, at the Bath Campus. Really cool. You look outside and you see the construction going on with the new educational wing. And you saw the video from Ezra about the extension and opening up in just a few weeks, which is really neat. I was able to go this past week and check it out. It's amazing. It's like amazing what God is doing. And uh, down south, down south in Norton, we have accents down south. Down south in Norton, we got a lot of stuff going on too. Uh, we have the Barberton campus that we're getting ready to launch uh, in January. So in the video I said 2015, the plan is January of 2015, we're going to launch our Barberton campus, which is very, very exciting. So we're putting together, we're kind of figuring out who's going and being part of the launch team, and then we're putting together ministry teams right now. And I want to tell you, a few months ago, we had a meeting here at the Bath Campus and an information meeting, an interest meeting, and this coming Saturday uh, evening at 6 o'clock at the Norton campus, we have another meeting for those that are interested in being a part of the Barbering campus. And so if that's you, and this is, by the way, not just a Norton thing, like it's not just Norton that's planning uh, Barbering. We actually have people from Norton, Bath, and Medina that are all uh, going to be part of it. So it's very, very exciting. If that's you, I want to invite you next Saturday at 6 o'clock. And I, and I want to say this too as I get started. Um, most of you don't know me from Adam. Like, you don't know me from any guy walking down the street. And I, and I know that that can be kind of weird when uh, I'm standing up here and, and sharing with you, and you don't know if you can trust me or not. And so I just want to share with you, my, my prayer this week has been that God would, in these next 35-ish minutes, that God would allow you to see my heart a little bit, and he would use what I share with you to challenge your hearts and your lives. So I pray that he would do that this morning. Uh, we just started a series last week. Pastor Jeff started a series last week called Unstoppable, looking at the movement of the church. And last week he talked about uh, the mission of the church. Like, what is the church? What are we here for? I think it's really interesting. It's an interesting discussion to think, like, Jesus could, when you and I make a decision to follow Christ, he could just immediately take us, right? Like, he could just rapture us immediately, but he doesn't. He leaves us here. So why are we here what is the mission of the church? That's what Jeff looked at last week. And he started off and he talked a little bit, and I think this is appropriate, like what is the church? When we talk about the church, who is the church? And we said basically that you are part of the church when first of all you realize that you're a sinner, right? Like you have done wrong, you've made mistakes, you've made bad decisions, you've broken the rules. I am a sinner. And for uh, every single one of, us, one of us in this room, it's not like a one-time decision, Right? It's like something that we do, we struggle with over and over and over again. And then we realize that God is real, right? Like God, there is a God in heaven who exists and he's real. And what he says is he can't really have anything to do with sin because he's holy. And the requirement to be with him on our part is complete sinlessness. That means having never sinned, not even once. And so we go, uh-oh, like I'm in trouble. But then we hear the good news. We hear the gospel. And the gospel says that while we were still sinners, 
God loved us so much that he sent his son. He sent Jesus to die for us. And through Jesus' death, his death is payment for us, for our sins, if we choose to accept it, if we choose to receive it. And so whatever direction we were going, we stop and we start following Jesus. It's called repentance. We stop, we turn, and we follow Jesus. And when we do that, we're part of God's church. And it's not like just a decision that we make, right? Like it's not just, eh, I think I'm gonna decide to do this. God's spirit has a huge role in that in drawing us to Christ and opening up our hearts in order to follow him. And so I, as, as I you know, spend time with you this morning, I'm very confident that many of us in this room and all throughout our services this weekend have experienced just that, you know? You have experienced each of those things and you love Jesus and you're following him and you're part of his church. But I also know this, in a room this size, there's lots of folks here this morning that are not sure, you know? And you're examining this and you're deciding, is this what I want? You know, it's a big decision and you wanna make an informed decision. And can I just say that I'm so glad that you're here like this is such a good place for you to be because we believe, and it's a safe place for you to be because we believe that all of this stuff that we talk about week after week, all this stuff that we talk about in here is truth. And it's not just like, like some historical truth, you know? Like uh, George Washington was the first president of the United States. Like that's true, but it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference in my day-to-day life, you know? Like I don't wake up and go, oh my goodness, George Washington was the first president of the United States. It's gonna be a great day today. I'm gonna to live for George. Like, that's ridiculous, right? Like, that's silly. We don't do that. But the truth of the gospel is the truth that many of us in this room can tell you changes everything about us. It takes our past, our checkered pasts, and we all have checkered pasts, and it redeems our past. And it takes our present and our future and it completely changes it. He changes the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, changes everything about our lives. So that's the church, those that trust, love, and follow Jesus. And last week, Jeff looked at the mission of the church, said we're on a mission. If you are part of the church, you are on a mission from God. God gives us a mission. We're not just here for ourselves, right? Church is probably a lot more like a battleship than it is like a cruise ship. You ever thought about this? A cruise ship has a purpose, right? The purpose of a cruise ship is to provide things like entertainment and, and, and uh, leisure and good food for its consumers, right? That's what the purpose of a cruise ship is, but the purpose of a battleship is different. The battleship has a mission, and the mission is to go into an area of unrest and do what? Bring peace, right? The church is much more like a battleship which has a mission going into people's hearts who are living in unrest and bringing peace. And so that's Jesus' church. And today we're going to look at the history of the church, the history of this mission. I used to hate history. When I was younger, I hated it. Probably because you had to read a lot in history classes, and I hated reading. And I probably thought, like, what do old dead people have to teach me? What do old dead people, they didn't even have the internet back then. What could I possibly learn from them? But, but as I've gotten older, as I've matured a little bit, I really love to learn about history, particularly Christian history, because many of these men and women that you read about that love and follow Jesus had this incredible, undivided devotion to God and this depth of faith that 
if I'm honest, many times I look at and I'm jealous for. And there's so much that I can learn from. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about history, the history of the church. And we start from the beginning, when the church started. When did the church start? Well, most people, a lot of people would say the church started after Jesus left. So after Jesus lived and died on the cross and rose again and uh, ascended into heaven, then the church started. But I think, and that's possible, but I think a good argument could be made that the church started when Jesus first began to call the disciples to himself. So one by one, as these 12 ordinary men began to follow Jesus, the church was beginning and the church was growing. And as these men began to follow Christ slowly but surely, they began to change and the church began to take shape. And see, here's the thing. This is so cool. Here's the thing. Something happened to these men and women. It's not long before women, of course, start following Jesus too. Something happened to these men and women in the early church to cause them to do some things that from the outside looking in must have seemed absolutely crazy. Like, absolutely crazy. Like, they shared everything they had generously. You have a need, I've got stuff, I'm gonna share it with you. Shared everything they had generously. They were willing to suffer beatings, torture, persecution. They were willing to think a lot less of themselves and their own desires and instead think about other people and their desires. Many of them were willing to leave, think about this, everything that they had and everything that they knew in order to bring this thing that changed them to people who hadn't yet heard and experienced it. Something happened to them. Do you know what it was? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't that they found a new religion and they were just religiously following the tenets of this religion. That's not what it was. Do you know what happened to them? You know. Jesus, right? Jesus happened to them. When these men and women, when they had an encounter with Jesus and they began following Jesus and they believed that Jesus was who he said he was, the church was born and their lives were changed forever because they had an encounter with Jesus, which, which from the outside looking in must have looked absolutely crazy. But, but not like a, a weird kind of, like there's different kind of crazies, Right? Like you have weird crazy, and you're like, I don't want that kind of crazy, right? But then you have an attractive kind of crazy, like I want that kind of crazy. And guys, can I tell you, as, I, as I've been just planning this week and praying through it, I think our lives should probably, today, should probably look a little bit crazy to our world too. If we have the same passion and love and reckless abandon that define the last 2,000 years of church history, our lives should probably look a little bit crazy to our world too. And if they don't, if they don't, maybe somewhere along the way, we've made a few compromises. I know I've seen this in my own life many times, in the time since I've started following Jesus. And, it, and the scary thing is it's subtle, you know? It like slithers its way in and you don't even realize it. And when I do, I hate it. I hate it because it hurts but I try to get rid of it, and I try to get my focus back on Jesus. How about you? I'll let you chew on that. We'll come back to that one. So, so the church started with 12 ordinary men encountering Jesus. And I got to tell you, I've really wrestled with what to share with you guys this morning because there's kind of a lot that's happened over the last 2,000 years of church history, right? Jeff, would you come to the Bath Campus? I'd love to have you at the Bath Campus again to share in our Unstoppable series. Your topic the last 2,000 years of church history in 35 minutes or less. 
and don't be boring, right? So I've like really struggled with what to share with you, but here's what I want to do. Let me just kind of show you where I'm going here. Here's what I want to do. I think I can actually summarize the last 2,000 years of church history in one verse in the Bible. One verse in the Bible, which I'll do. And I think it'll give you kind of the big picture, the 30,000 foot view of what the church has been about for the last 2,000 years. And then I want to share with you five things, if we got time, five things that really stuck out to me as I look at the history of the church that this week kind of smacked me in the face. I hope to smack you a little bit in the face this week in a gentle way, right? Some things that are very, very relevant for us today that the church has lived with and dealt with over the last 2,000 years. So that's the plan. Cool? You with me? That was terrible. (laughs) All right, I'm going to go on anyway. So you're dying to know what that verse is, right? If you are a note-taking person in your programs, you got a little outline in there. Uh, We also use the U version. If you like to use your smartphone, you go to U version live, and our zip code is 44333. So here's the passage. Ready? One verse. Here's what it is. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Do you know what Acts 1-8 says? Jesus is talking to his disciples, okay, after he's been crucified, dead, buried, risen again, and he's about to ascend up to heaven, and he tells them, and he tells us, I think, that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and when they do, they're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit, and it's not just any kind of power. It's not like power to leap tall buildings in a single bound. It's not the kind of power, but it's power with a purpose, and the purpose is to be his witness, Take a look at it. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Guys, this is, this is 2,000 years of church history in one verse because it's exactly what's been happening for the last 2,000 years and exactly what's still happening today. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, those are like concentric circles moving out from Jerusalem, eventually covering the entire world. Followers of Jesus are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they cover the earth and they share the good news and they make disciples. That's the history of the church. In a nutshell, that's the history of the church and that's the purpose of the church. It's what we do. It's what Jesus left us here for. That's a 30,000 foot view of the last 2,000 years of church history. And as we talk about, about all of this, You know, as the church has focused on these things, there's been times it's focused well. Making disciples, bringing the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. There's been times when the church has not focused very well on that. There's been times that the church has had successes along the way. They've been focused and they've seen many, many, many people come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's been times that the church has experienced terrible failure, terrible failure. There's been times the church has been very pure in their intentions, and there's been times that the church has been very, very corrupt. But that's the history of the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
So now that we've got the last 2,000 years of church history, I feel good about this. I feel like we've covered everything, okay? So this is just like gravy. This is just bonus for you, okay? Now that we have the last 2,000 years of church history covered, let's jump. We're we're hovering about 30,000 square feet, right? Let's jump out of the plane and let's skydive into a handful of things that happened over these last 2,000 years and talk about what we learned from them because the history of the church is really just unique story after unique story, all centered around the church going out and the power of the Holy Spirit making disciples to the end of the earth. So five things this week that really got my my attention. Here we go. You're in the first chapter of Acts. Flip to the right to the second chapter of Acts. Acts chapter two. I think this is like one of those really cool snapshots. In, in the book of Acts in particular, we get certain snapshots of what the church looked like, how the church functioned, what the church did. And this is one of those really cool snapshots where we get to see what the ancient church looked like. Acts chapter two, starting in verse 42. Here we go. They, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Can you imagine? They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. You got a need, I got money, I'm going to sell it, I'm going to give you what you need. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then look what happened. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here's my first observation. Ready? This is the first point in your outline. The church multiplied when it was united and focused. The church over the last 2,000 years multiplied when it was united and focused. It's fascinating how the church multiplied and grew when each individual was united together and they were focused on Christ. It's incredible. They were generous, you know? They were loving, they were selfless, they were unified, and they were focused on Christ. And when they were, the church grew and it grew rapidly. And then people on the outside, they saw how they lived and they wanted to experience what these people were experiencing. Again, it must look a little crazy on the outside, but not that weird crazy, but like an I want that kind of crazy. And then it begs, it, it, people see their lives and it begs a question. What in the world happened to these people? What in the world happened to these people to make them so loving? Jesus said, people will know that you're my followers by the way you love, right? What in the world happened to these people to make them so loving and so caring and so generous and so dang joyful? What happened? And then people heard their message. They saw their lives and then they heard their message and the Holy Spirit infiltrated their hearts and people chose to believe. They saw They heard the message, the spirit was drawing them and people believed and they started following Jesus and they started living that way and the church multiplied and then those people were living that way too and the church multiplied more and more and more and more and it's not long before then the church starts sending people out to share this incredible news about Jesus with people that have never heard it before, people that are living farther away. They couldn't keep it in because they knew that there were people dying every day who had never heard this incredible news about Jesus and they were going to hell. And there were people living every day 
in a living hell of their own. And the church was compelled to go. The gospel compelled them. They had to go out and share this good, good news. And so what happens? Well, the gospel moves. It starts in Jerusalem and it moves out to Samaria. And then it moves out or to Judea. And then it moves out of Judea into Samaria. And it's not long before the gospel is moving to the ends of the earth. If you haven't, if you, haven't you should read chapter Acts, uh, chapter Acts chapter 13 through 20 this week, if you haven't in a while. Acts 13 through 20 are eight chapters that talk about Paul's journeys. The apostle Paul had three missionary journeys. Just Paul, three missionary journeys where he went out to a people that he had never met before. He didn't know them from anybody. And he suffered terrible things. Like It's incredible the things that he went through. And during that time, he established at least... 14 churches, 14 churches that we know about today. And then those churches who were focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ multiplied, and they planted churches, and they started churches, and it multiplied more and more and more and more. Paul alone, just Paul, was associated with over 40 workers for the gospel. Many of them he set up as elders in churches that he had planted. As the church is united and it's focused on Christ, you see this all throughout the last 2,000 years, as it's united and focused on Christ and his gospel, not on anything else, not on the kind of music that I like, not on how comfortable the chairs are, not on you know, how hot or cold it is in the auditorium. When they're united and focused on Christ and his gospel, the church multiplied because people saw their lives and they heard their message and they wanted what they had. And guys, listen, the same holds true today. The same holds true today. Here, here's a question I've been asking myself this week that maybe you wanna ask yourself right now too. Do people want what I have? We all got relationships. We got people that know us, know us pretty well. People that know me, like, do they, do they want what I have? You know, do, do people feel, do, do they look at me and think, that, guy's, that dude's a little bit crazy, but I kind of want to be crazy like he is. Do people look at me and does my life beg the question of what in the world makes him so loving and generous and caring and so dang joyful? Those are good questions to continually ask ourselves as we evaluate our lives. Okay, I gotta go on, second point. And I think I can be quick here, but I wanna bring this up because boy, we see this in many ways around us today and we've seen it over and over again in the last 2,000 years of church history. So something happens that's really significant in the fourth century AD. Something happens really, really significant in the fourth century. You know what it was? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, in the Roman Empire, which basically, Roman Empire back then ruled everything. They, they kind of ruled the known world. All of a sudden, in the Roman Empire, Christianity, for the very first time, becomes legal and popular. You have a guy named Constantine, who was emperor at the time, and he apparently had, uh, history's a little foggy on the specifics here, but he apparently had some sort of experience with God. So he's about to enter into this major battle, and he's scared, and he looks up to the sun. Uh, he probably worshiped the sun god, S-U-N, the sun god, okay? He looks up to the sun, and guess what he sees? Cross. 
And some, the le- legend has it, he also saw these words written in the sky, by this sign, the cross, you will win. Constantine sees that. He's the, he's the emperor of Rome. Well, he does win, and it changes him forever. It's kind of conflicting reports. Did he really know and love and follow Jesus? I don't know, but he was changed forever. And so when he comes back, he issues a decree throughout the entire kingdom. This is what it says. Our purpose is to allow Christians and all others to, <clears throat> to worship as they desire so that whatever divinity lives in the heavens will be kind to us. You get a little bit of his heart there. You know, he's kind of on the fence here. We'll, but whatever, whatever his heart was, all of a sudden, Christianity becomes free. Now it's legal to be a Christian, and it's soon that the church and the state become mingled together, and millions of people automatically become Christians, at least in name. And then Christian leaders become very, very powerful people in the kingdom, in the empire. And so Christianity goes from being illegal and dangerous and yet multiplying to legal and in vogue and a way to get power and yet watered down and impotent. So here, here's, here's what we see throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, and we see it today too. Not all church growth is healthy. Not all church growth is healthy. The church multiplies when it's united and focused on Christ, but not all church growth is healthy. We saw this when Constantine made Christianity legal in the fourth century. We see it in the book of Acts chapter eight when Simon the sorcerer kinda wants to follow Jesus because he sees Peter and John do amazing things. He sees the Holy Spirit working through Peter and John. He says, I want that power. I wanna buy that power from you, right? And we see it all around us today because you can grow a Christian church through very human means by telling people a little bit of the truth and a whole lot of what they want to hear. Not all church growth over the last 2,000 years or today is good. Bigger is not always better. And just because the church is growing, it doesn't mean that it's preaching the gospel. Teaching and preaching the pure gospel, that's what gives people life and freedom, and grace, and salvation. Teaching people a distorted gospel or a false gospel at best confuses people. At worst, it sends people to hell because they've never had an encounter with the living Jesus in a personal way. I think that's why Paul tells Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch how you live and watch what you believe very closely. And if you do, you'll save yourself and you'll save the people that you're teaching, the people that are listening to you. Living and teaching the truth matters. And not all church growth is healthy. Here's the third thing that we see all over church history. It's gonna sound, I don't wanna scare anybody if you don't like math. It's gonna sound like a mathematical equation, but it's not, ready? Division crushes multiplication. Division crushes multiplication over and over and over we see this from theological heresies to power struggle to selfishness and pride over and over and over again we see how division crushes multiplication from the Arian controversy to to the great schism that separates the eastern and the western churches to the dark ages to the reformation to the prosperity gospel of today division crushes 
multiplication. And I should define division. Here's what I mean when I say division. I mean the disunity and the distraction that comes by people or groups taking their focus off Jesus and his gospel and putting their focus anywhere else. That's what I mean. Disunity, division, distraction that comes by taking your focus off Jesus and his gospel and putting it anywhere else. And it's deceiving because division, sometimes, sometimes it sounds like a good thing, you know? It sometimes sounds like it's good because it's like, well, if you divide something, you make two out of one, right? In a sense, it does. But let me give you an example. You have a church of 150 people, and they start fighting with each other. And it's not long before they divide because one group likes contemporary music and one group likes traditional music, and they, they break in half. And you go from one group of 150 people to two groups of 75 people. And at first, that sounds like, it looks like multiplication, right? It looks like it could be something good. You go from one to two. But the truth is that many times, most times, one or both of those churches have lost focus and they soon begin to wither and die. And so instead of having one or two churches, witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, you have none. And it's not multiplication at all. It's why we have this is, a, this is a terrible thought, it's why, but it's true. It's why we have over 30,000 different Protestant denominations. Did you know that? I mean, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And most of them, the majority of them, are in decline, and they're struggling. Jeff stressed this last week, and I think, I think it's so good, that it's not about individuals, Right? Like the church is not so much about individuals. It's much more about being part of the community of God. It's much more being part of the church. But the truth is, and please, please listen to me when I say this. This is so important. The truth is that you have the power to cause an incredible amount of division and distraction in the church. I want, I want to look you in the eyes when I say that because it's so true and so important. Each and every one of us in here has the power to create an incredible amount of division and distraction in the church. If we're not careful, each and every one of us can screw up a lot of things and we can hurt a lot of people if we're not focused on Christ and his gospel and we can crush the multiplication that Jesus calls us to, the mission that he calls us as his church on. And when you think about that personally, it's uncomfortable, I know that. I realize that it's uncomfortable, but we got to get that. You have the power to create an incredible amount of division if you're not careful. And you have the power to make an incredible impact on multiplication if you are careful and you are focused. It's why the Bible says things like this in 1 Corinthians 10. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Later in Romans 16, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out, watch out for those that cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings that you've learned. Stay away from them. And then the Bible is so clear on like where our focus is to be. It's so clear. In Hebrews 3, it says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on who? Jesus, right? 
Later in chapter 12, he says, let's throw off everything else that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on who? Jesus, right? Division crushes multiplication. And if I'm not careful, I have the potential to create an incredible amount of division and distraction. And I have the power to crush multiplication. So that's the depressing part. That's my depressing point or my cautionary point. Let's shift gears a little bit. To me, one of the coolest things, one of the coolest things in church history is to read about some of the incredible leaders over the last 2,000 years in the church. Incredible leaders. And here's, here's what I pull from this. Ready? Here's the next point. Leaders make all the difference. Leaders make all the difference. I love learning about guys like Athanasius. Athanasius, they called him the black dwarf. He was a short, little, dark-skinned Egyptian guy. And he was so passionate for a biblical view of Jesus, a view, by the way, that every major branch of Christianity holds to today, and yet many in his day didn't. He was so passionate for a biblical view of Jesus that he lived through being exiled from the church. Guess how many times? Not one, not two, not three, five times. Five different exiles by four or five different emperors and church leaders. I love reading about guys like John Huss, who in the dark ages refused to stop preaching that God was the head of the church. Not any man, but God was the head of the church. And the Bible had authority in the lives of Christians that even when threatened at being burned alive at the stake, he would not stop preaching. He said, I would not for a chapel full of gold, for all the money in the world, recede from the truth. And then later, literally, literally seeing the fire that they were going to burn him alive in, he looks at it and this is what he says. He says, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I've never thought nor preached except with the one intention of willing men, if possible, from their sins. Today, I will gladly die. And as they're burning him alive, he's singing an old Christian chant, an old Christian song. And we don't have time to talk about guys like Martin Luther, who risked being excommunicated from the church in order to try to reform the Western church. Or guys like Ulrich Zwingli, who he happened to be on vacation when the black plague, the, the, the bubonic plague, black death broke out in his hometown where he was pastoring. He happened to be away when this happened and he went back into it taking an incredible risk because the people that he loved and shepherded and cared for were dying and struggling and sick. And there were people in his city that didn't know Jesus. And so he went back and he got the plague, by the way, and God miraculously healed him. Incredible. I love learning about guys like that. Men and women who were flawed, like none of them were perfect. All of them were imperfect, flawed people, but they loved Jesus more than anything else, and they were willing to suffer and serve a people who are lost and hurting so that they would come to experience the salvation of Jesus. The church needs leaders. You see this throughout the last 2,000 years. Leaders make all the difference. Can I ask you a question? In fact, I'd love for you to raise your hand. Raise your hand if you feel like you are called to be a leader. Raise your hand. Okay, we got like 10 leaders in this room. It's incredible, wonderful. Okay, now everybody raise your hand. Everybody do it. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, guys. I think God calls each and every one of us to be a leader. 
I think God calls each and every one of us to be a leader, some with greater influence than others, but every single one of us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and God calls all of us to be, then he calls you to be a leader. You know why? Because leadership is influence. I mean, that's what it is. At its core, that's what, in its most basic way, that's what leadership is. It's influence. In fact, that's how many writers and social scientists define leadership, is influence. Let me ask you this. What do you think Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, you are the salt of the earth? When he said, you are the light of the world. What do you think he meant by that? Well, what does salt do to everything that it's in? It, it influences it, right? It influences the taste. It has a preserving influence, right? What does light do to everything that it's around? It influences it. It illumines the darkness and it exposes what's true and what's real. See, we're all called to be influencers. Every single one of us, as Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us to influence the world. And so I believe that every single follower of Jesus Every one of us has a very real and tangible calling to lead in their life in one capacity or another. So what about you? Like, what about you? What's God calling you to lead in? Or or maybe you would prefer I phrase it this way. How is God calling you to use your gifts to influence your world for Jesus and his gospel? And, and can I warn you that the leadership that Jesus talks about, Jesus' leadership is different than, many, many times different than the kind of leadership that we see in our world today, right? Not all the time, but many times the leadership that we see today is defined by like the assertion of power. As a leader, I have power. I exert power over my followers. But Jesus' leadership is different. Jesus' leadership isn't so much defined by the assertion of power over his followers. It's defined by things like service, and sacrifice, and suffering. In Matthew 20, it says, Jesus called them, the disciples together, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them, and their high officials have authority, exercise authority over them. They exercise power, they assert power. But he says, not so with you, uh-uh. That's not, that's not how we do it. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Sounds a lot like serving, right? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That sounds a lot like sacrifice and suffering. And in John 13, a passage we talk about when we do our communion services many times, right after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, which is a gross thing, like it's gross, feet are disgusting anyway, but especially back then when they're all dirty and stuff, he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet, right? And then he says to them this, he says, I've set you an example. I've set you an example. You should do as I have done for you. That's the kind of leadership that Jesus calls each and every one of us to to influence the world through serving and sacrifice and suffering. Leaders make all the difference and leaders are willing to serve and sacrifice and suffer and we're all leaders. What is God calling you to lead? How is God calling you to use your gifts to influence your world for Jesus? Okay, so here's, here's how I gotta end. I gotta wrap it up. Here's, here's how I wanna end. 
So Grace Church is actually part of the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches, right? Do you know what, uh, why what ultimately became known as the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches, like why it began? It began out of, the, out of the Pietists and Anabaptist movements of the 18th century, which you can forget that, but it began as an effort to reform and renew dead churches who had lost their way. It began as an effort to reform and renew dead churches who had lost their way. What became known as the FGBC began as a small group of men and women who believed that Christianity was a faith that was meant to be lived out practically and experienced personally. Christianity was a faith that was meant to be lived out practically. This is why, this is why the FGBC came to be. Lived out practically and experienced personally. And guys, that is so much the heartbeat of what we do here at Grace Church. We believe that Christianity is a faith that's meant to be lived out practically and experienced personally. And we're not here for ourselves. The church isn't here for the church. We've got a mission. We're to take the gospel to the world, to a people that haven't yet experienced Jesus. Our first value is to make Jesus make sense to the world. That's why we're here. And we're not doing anything new. Like we're not doing anything cutting edge. We're not doing anything different than the last 2,000 years of church history. We're just living out what Jesus told us to do in Matthew and Acts in the 21st century best we know how, as effectively as we know how. And sometimes we fail at that. And sometimes we do better. See, we're a part of something bigger. We're a part of a history that's bigger than us. And it will continue long after we're gone until the day that Jesus returns. And there's a degree of insignificance to it. Like there's, it, it in, in some ways, it's kind of insignificant what we do because we're only a small, small part of what God is doing in this world. And we're even a smaller part of what God has been doing over the last 2,000 years in this world. But at the same time, so there's a degree of insignificance to what we do. We're a small part, but at the same time, at the same time, God has plans for us. Like God has, as I sit and as I look at you, God has plans for every single one of you. He's got next moves for each of us to make. For some of you in here, your next move is to decide if you want to be a follower of Jesus. For some of you, your next move is to decide if you want to be part of his church, if you believe that this is true, and you want to be part of the church of Jesus Christ, this unstoppable movement that began 2,000 years ago. For others of you who are already part of the church, I think God has different plans for you. What's he calling you to? And, and are you listening You know, like we're not placeholders of the faith. That's not what he calls us to. I'm just going to stay still and I'm not going to lose ground. That's not what he calls us to do. That's not the mission of the church. Here's our last point. Now is our time to carry the torch. Now is our time in the history of the, we are writing the history of the church right now. Now is our time to carry the torch. We're torchbearers. We're advancers of the faith. The reason that things change so much around here is that we're unrelenting in helping other people experience the power of the gospel. And we're willing to go to the ends of the earth, to places like Haiti and Africa and places like Barberton and our next door neighbors and the guy that we work with. And that family member that's really challenging, we all have them, right? Bringing the gospel of Jesus to the world, that's what we do. 
That's the history of the church, it's the present of the church, and it's the future of the church. So as the, as the band comes out, I wanna say this. You know, I thought last week was so powerful. I never thought about this before. When Jeff said, uh, he said, somewhere along the way, someone has died to bring you the gospel. I thought, my goodness. I, just, I guess I just never thought about that before. And it makes me think, like, like how willing am I to what extent will I go to to bring the gospel to my world? And I want to challenge you. You know, we're going we're gonna to play some music here. And I want to challenge you to take advantage of this time with the Lord. I want to challenge you to go to him. If singing songs is the best way for you to do that, sing songs. If sitting there praying quietly in your heart is the best way for you, do that. But go to the Lord and talk to him. Are you ready to be multiplied? Ask the Lord, is my focus in the right place? Ask the Lord for his help that you wouldn't be a a person of division and distraction and talk to him about where he's calling you to lead. Like how is he calling you to influence in your life today? And if you're scared, tell him you're scared. If you're you're fearful, tell him that. We're all fearful. Things are scary. Following Jesus many times can be scary, but guess what? We serve a God who is powerful and he's strong and this is his world and he knows you by name and he loves you and there's nothing we need to fear. So I'm gonna pray and I just encourage you to take advantage of this time. Father, I I am so humbled that you would use an imperfect, inherently flawed person like me to be your witness, God. And we don't have to do it alone, but you give us each other and you give us your spirit to live inside of us. Jesus, you said it's better that you go and that the counselor comes, that the spirit comes to us. That's even better. We have the very spirit of Jesus Christ living inside of us when we follow you. That is incredible. I pray, God, that you would help us to live in the power of the Spirit as we look to take the gospel, the good news, from our hearts to our Jerusalem, to our Judea, to our Samaria, and to the ends of our world. We need you, and we trust you.